Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. We are wrapping up our last Sunday morning in our series we've entitled Holy Grit. And we've been talking about how we can have an earthly endurance with a heavenly hope. And we've been looking at over the last few weeks, what does that look like and how do we bear that out and how do we endure those storms and what can we expect to face as we go through those times of just bearing up under sometimes great strain or disappointment or guilt. And so today I want us to look at uh, really and truly four major pillars, four major things that we need to have in place to have an appropriate, true, biblical worldview. And this is very important that we have these things as we go into whatever season, as we live for Christ in the good times, in the bad times, but especially as we go through trying times, we need to have a solid foundation. We need to have a biblical grounding whenever we approach difficulty because we need to know what the Bible says and we need to think in the right way. We need to have the right kind of belief system and that belief system is based upon, and I know different people have different, uh, different ways they divide this out, but I divide it out into four major areas. And so today I want us to look at those four major areas and I want us to look at what do those have to do with enduring and what does it have to do with us and these are all components of the gospel. And so I think we really need to have a grasp of that as we move forward no matter what season we're facing but especially in the seasons where we need great biblical endurance. So I'm going to pray for us and we will get into God's Word. Lord God, we give you thanks for this morning. We give you thanks for this time that we've had together just to worship you and sing to you. Father, we pray now as we worship you by, by studying your Word, by hearing your Word preached, Father, we pray that you would be glorified. We pray that your name would be known. We pray that you would equip us to live for you and transform us into the likeness of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you talk to people so often about the gospel, so many times people will say this, the gospel is you need to be saved in order to go to heaven. And you are saved through Jesus. Boom. And they say that's the gospel. And so many times I think as Christians, that's how we view the wholeness of the gospel, just as that, that how to be saved. And in doing so, we don't look at the gospel as something that we need to rest upon, to think about, to depend upon every single day. Because that, that is one component. But the gospel is broader than that. And I know you're saying, wait a minute, are you adding something to the gospel, the good news of Christ? No. But we have to take it in its wholeness, in the fullness of it, to really understand that. Because whenever you understand the fullness of the gospel of Christ, then it enables you to be equipped to live for Christ here on this earth, no matter what we face, whether it's times of, of uh, trial, whether it's times of rejoicing, whatever it is, 
we know that that falls under that understanding of the gospel. So what are those components of the gospel? Well, there are four questions that every person has to answer. How did we get here? What's wrong with the world? How can what is wrong with the world be made right? And what does the future hold? Every major worldview answers those four questions. Now, let me just go ahead and tell you. I've talked to people over the years, and they have they have uh, they they said we're Christians, we believe in Jesus, uh, we we followers we're followers of Christ. But as you start talking, you find out that sometimes they will answer one of those questions in a very divergent way. And just let me tell you. If you answer any one of those four questions in a way that is less than biblical, you will be going into deep theological error. Maybe not initially, maybe not right off, but eventually you will go into great theological error. That's why it's important that we answer those four questions very biblically. So this morning, I just want us to talk about the enduring gospel. If we're talking about endurance, we need to talk about the enduring gospel. So let's just start with question number one. How did we get here? Here's the biblical answer. God made the universe and created humans in his image. There it is. Now, I know you say, that's enough. We can just end there. But I just want to show you not only how that answer flies in the face of all these other worldviews that deny the reality of God's creation, but also how that applies to us today in all sorts of other areas. First of all, look at Genesis 1, chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. Let's just stop there for a second. We're not even a full sentence in. We're not even a full sentence in, and already the Word of God testifies to the existence of God. So what do we find out? First of all, by this one phrase, God created. First of all, there is a God, and he is the one who creates. God created the heavens and the earth, which means pantheism is out the window. Pantheism that says God is all things. Creation is God. No, creation can't be God if God made all of creation, if God made the heavens and the earth. So creation is not God. God exists. He exists separate from creation. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Notice God did not call light from some other place to get to where he was. Light didn't already exist. It wasn't out there somewhere in a box somewhere. And God said, somebody go get light. No. God said, let there be light, and it says, and there was light. If you look it up in the Hebrew, I love the Hebrew, you look it up in the Hebrew, and it's even simpler. The sentence just says, and God said, light be, and light was. Isn't that good? God said, light be, and light was. Not only are God's words executive, they're legislative, as it's been said. Not only does he say, this is what happens, his words actually make it happen. And so God speaks and the universe is created and you find he speaks and he creates all these animals and he plant, plants and he divides the day and the night. He, he just speaks and it's so. So there you have the authority of God's word. God's word is authoritative. And so this is why we find in Psalms chapter 14, or Psalm 14, that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. God doesn't say, well, you know, there are such things as, 
as, as people who don't believe in me, and we have to understand. No, he says, the fool says there's no God. Uh, despite all the evidence that there is a God, and God exists, and he is the creator. Then you find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, look at this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Therefore, humanity has meaning. We're made in the image of God. Notice what else he says. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Is God saying that we're to be cruel to animals? Absolutely not. But God is saying, humans, you are going to function as my representative on earth. You are going to rule over things. I'm ruling over you and you are to rule over things in a way that reflects my authority over you. So not only do humans have meaning, humans have purpose. God has given us an assignment. And by the way, we all have an assignment as humans before God. And then we all have individual callings before God. I've had people say, yeah, well, I mean, it's easy for you to say you're in full-time church ministry. Listen, everybody has a calling. Everybody has a purpose from God. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Let's count, shall we? Male and female. Okay, so that's two. It's pretty simple. So now you have your identity established by God. We don't get to choose. God established this. It's God's authority. Our origin determines our identity. Where you come from determines who you are. And so now we have God laying this out. We find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God did not just speak humanity into existence. God fashioned. He created humans. He created them from the dust, and then he breathed his breath into them. One writer said that God, God made sure that man was more like God than the rest of creation. God bears earmarks, or humans bear earmarks of God that the rest of creation does not bear. Animals aren't made in his image. The world is not made in his image. Humans are made in his image. And then not only that, we don't get to decide what we do with ourselves, with our own lives, because all of creation belongs to God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created, get this, through him and for him. So all creation is for God. It's not that God needed us. I had a student one time, he says, I believe God created us because he was lonely. Really? He probably could have done better. I mean, really? We have not been the best company to God throughout the universe, right? Throughout ages. God didn't create humanity because he was lonely. God, God enjoyed perfect communion, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect Trinitarian communion for all eternity past. We were created for his glory so that God could, God could create, have a creation that would reflect his image and his glory throughout the universe. That's the whole point. And that's what we find. That's the ultimate idea. God tells Adam and Eve, go and multiply. 
Why? Because God likes babies? Oh, God loves babies, of course. But the idea is that they would be going out and they would be spreading the image of God all over the face of creation. Thus making his image known and glorifying God. That's what we would find. So all of creation attests to the existence of God and the goodness of God. That's why in Romans chapter 1 we can find this, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So they are without excuse. All of creation screams out, there is a God, he's a creator, he's creative, and he's good. So that is where we came from. That is how we got here. Well, so then what is wrong with the world? Well, what's wrong with the world? Human sinned against God, resulting in suffering, struggle, and separation from God. That's what happened. Why is the world in the condition that it's in? Because of humanity. Because of our disobedience. Because of our rebellion. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the, tree, of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and there was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was be, to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. A little bit later, you find that then God comes to them, confronts them. And then we have the first sacrifice in the Bible. God kills animals, and he, God does it. And God takes the skins and he clothes them. It's a little hint, 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 wink, wink, nod, nod to a sacrifice that is required to cover sin. The first blood that we find that is recorded that is shed in the Bible is shed on behalf of a covering for sin for Adam and Eve. And God is the one who does it. But then God sends them out of the garden. They're separated from God. And notice we find everything that sin distorts right here. Laid out in Satan's little speech. Sin distorts our view of truth. Did God actually say not to eat of every tree? Why do you think truth is under attack so much in our nation today, in our world today? It's because if you get somebody believing the wrong truth and they believe it for long enough, all the other dominoes fall. So sin distorts our understanding of truth. It distorts our understanding of righteousness. Notice what he says. You will not surely die. Oh, you're not surely going to die. God's standard, ah, God doesn't, God's holding out on you. Now, I know some people have said, but they didn't die. They died spiritually in that moment. Spiritually, they died in that moment. They did. And if you are spiritually dead, when you are physically dead, you will be eternally dead. You'll be eternally separated from God. And so we find that sin distorts our view of truth, it distorts the view of righteousness, it distorts our view of identity. 
Because Satan says in chapter 3, verse 5, For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Yeah, well, there's a partial truth in there. Adam and Eve did know about good and evil by becoming evil themselves. Satan seemed to promise, oh, you'll know the difference in good and evil. Oh, yeah, you'll be able to judge between good and evil. Well, what happened was they became accursed and they were separated from God, thus knowing evil in a very personal way. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. What does this have to do with us? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Everybody sinned in Adam. Adam was our, was our representative, and so now we are all guilty because of that. But then we find not only are we guilty of the sin of Adam, we're guilty of our own personal sins that we commit atop that. And that's what we find in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And some people say, oh, well, it's not that bad. We're not, you know, sin, sin, has, sin keeps us from seeing ourselves really as we are. Sin really holds us back. Sin is really a, a force that keeps us from achieving our greatest goal. And that sin is just in our head and just in our mind. It's because we don't believe that we can accomplish those things. That's what you hear a lot of today. The Bible is clear. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Dead. Not sick. Not limping. Not a little bad off. No, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's some really bad news. That's what's wrong with the world. So how can what is wrong with the world be made right? Well, here it is. Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross in our place. I love 2 Corinthians 5.21, truly. For our, sin he made, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Just think about that. He made Jesus. He had Jesus who knew no sin sin ever that little that little stray thought that you had last night jesus never had that that little moment where you blew up at somebody jesus never had that that moment when you thought i could do that and nobody would even notice jesus never had that completely and totally completely and totally without sin can you imagine growing up you know jesus had half brothers and sisters mary and joseph had children after jesus was born can you imagine being one of Jesus' brothers or sisters, right? Can you imagine, Mary, why can't you be more like Jesus? Yeah, Jesus never does anything wrong. Can't you just hear those kids, right? But literally, Jesus never did anything wrong. Never, ever. So here he is. Here is someone who is completely and totally holy and without sin. And God, God made him who knew no sin. To what? To be sin for us, for our sake, on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the grand cosmic exchange. Here we are in our sin, deserving of hell, deserving of eternal separation from God. Here is Jesus, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, never done anything wrong, completely and totally always glorified God in exactly the right way. And he has eternal righteousness. And now, the Lord God, through the sacrifice of Christ, allows us to have the righteousness of Christ. And Christ takes upon himself the penalty of our sin. 
That is mind-blowing. It's even more mind-blowing when you think of how long has Jesus been eternally righteous? Forever. So what do we receive? God's eternal righteousness. The eternal right standing that Jesus enjoys is given to us. And that is why God can look upon us as though we have never sinned. Because we have the eternal righteousness of Christ. It's not that God looks at us and says, oh, you were okay up until this point, but we look beyond that. No, God looks at us and sees the eternal righteousness of Christ. And where did that happen? On the cross. John 19, verse 17. And he went out bearing his own cross. His own cross, by the way, is your cross, my cross. To the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. Drop down to verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge on a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's where it happened. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sin upon the cross. And you say, well, that's great. That's what I needed to understand in order to experience salvation. Can I just tell you? That's what you need to understand. That's what I need to understand. That's what we must understand every single day. Because when the world says, you have to do this, this, and this in order to be accepted, God says, I've already fully accepted you in Christ. When the world says, you are to blame for this and this and this and this, and we're not going to forgive you, God says, I have forgiven you of your sins and your trespasses through the blood of Christ. When the world says, there is no way, there is no way that you yourself can be so righteous to think that you're okay with God. We can say, absolutely true, there is no way, because that righteousness is based upon the work of Christ, not my own. That's why you don't have to fight, because you don't have to fight to win everybody else's approval. You're already approved, if you're in Christ, you are approved by the Lord God creator of the universe. So what your cubicle friend says about you really doesn't matter in the scheme of eternity. If you're experiencing peer pressure at school, it's hard, but it really doesn't carry a whole lot of weight when you understand that the Lord God of the universe calls you his own. This changes everything when you approach it in this way. And why did we receive this gift of salvation? Did God look and say, oh... They deserve this so much. No. It was out of his mercy. Heard somebody say one time that we make a mistake when we think that mercy gave us the cross. The cross, I'm sorry, we make a mistake when we think the cross gave us mercy. It's the opposite. I just got ahead of myself. We make a mistake when we think the cross gave us mercy. Mercy gave us the cross. It was God's mercy that he sent his son. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. His great mercy looked at us when we were separated from him, when we were rebelling from him, well, rebelling uh, against him, when we were living in darkness, and God said, you know what? Those, those. That blows our mind. That God would send his son to die for his enemies. And I know I've, I've talked to people before and they were like, well, I, I've, I've never been an enemy of God. Yeah, yeah. Before we come to know him, we are his enemies. And by the way, when Jesus died for us, we were all his enemies, right? Even if we hadn't been born, we're still all his enemies because none of us had come to salvation before then. We find that he does it out of his great mercy. And now we live by that power. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Paul writes, but far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, through Jesus, through his sacrifice, the world's been crucified to me. I don't have to pay the price the world is saying I have to pay. I don't have to do all the things the world says I have to do. I don't have to live for the applause of men. I don't have to live for these accolades. I don't have to live for these honors. I don't have to live for these awards. I don't have to live for any of that. The world has been crucified to me. And then he says, and then, not only that, and I to the world. I've been crucified to the world. I've been crucified to the influences of the world. I am dead to the influences of the world because I am alive to Christ. That's the difference that the gospel should be making in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. When something comes our way, we should be able to look at it and say, oh, wait a minute, I'm dead to that. I don't have to answer to that. I'm dead to that. I don't have to say yes to that. God, give me the power to say no to that because I'm dead to that because of the cross of Christ. I've been crucified to that. Not only that, the world's been crucified to me. That doesn't mean that we don't interact with the world. That doesn't mean that we don't love the world and care for them and, and, and seek to make Christ known to them. Absolutely. It doesn't mean that we live as hermits and isolate ourselves. But it does mean that the influence should not impact us to the degree that it once did. Sure, we'll struggle with sin. Sure, we'll struggle with, sin, with temptation. But we're no longer controlled by it. So what does the future hold? The restoration of all things by God. I had someone recently tell me, you know what? I've been listening to some of your old sermons. Bless their heart. I've been listening to some of your old sermons and going back over old notes. And you know, one of the things that I find that you mention a lot is the whole idea of restoration. You're really big on restoration. Yeah, I guess I am. I guess I am big on restoration. Because the older I get, the more and more I realize this is not it. Thank you, God, this world is not it, right? We have a restoration that is coming. That restoration is assured. What does it look like? What does the future hold? Now, so many people in the world tell you that, well, the world's just going to keep on going forever and ever and ever, and there is no future. There's nothing beyond right here, right now. That's why we need to get as much as we can right now. We need to live by the golden rule. Get as much gold as you can, then sit on the gold. That's what we need to do. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible holds to the restoration of all things by God. So there are some parts to that. The first thing that we find is God's judgment. That's part of his restoration. There's a separation that takes place before God rebuilds and recreates 
So there's a judgment that takes place. No one gets away with anything. There's God's judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you know what you do not see there? Some sort of idea of some cosmic scale. You don't see that. You don't see God takes all your good and he puts it on one side. And God takes all your bad and he puts it on the other side. And then he and the angels stand back and they eyeball it real carefully. And if it's close enough, then you get a pass. That's not what it says. It's, it's much simpler than that. Either your name is written or it's not. And if your name is not found, then you are separated for eternity from God in a real hell. Not metaphoric not figurative, a real hell. And that's the judgment of God. And, and I never thought that I would live in a world in a time where that is considered an unpopular, uh, unpopular thing to say within churches. That there is a real literal, literal hell where people literally go and they literally exist consciously for all eternity, separated from God and deepening in their own rebellion against God. But more and more, people are denying the existence of a real hell. The future holds that for those who do not know Christ. And that's the end of the line there, even though it's eternal. But that is, that's all that is expected for those who do not know Christ, whose names are not written. Well, what about if you do know Christ? Well, there's some other things. First of all, there's a new world. A new world. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So there's a new world. This is so good because you go back. You go back to Genesis 1 and you find that there is creation. And then you skip all the way to the end of Revelation and you get a recreation. Isn't that good? There is a recreation. God creates all things anew. God is not just going to make things new. Essentially, God is going to re-Edenize the universe. Made up word, but it works. God's going to re-Edenize the universe. The whole universe is going to be like Eden. He's going to make everything perfect, permanently. There won't be a tree, right? No one's going to be like, it's not going to be like the fall 2.0. That's not going to happen. So you find that there's going to be a new world. Not only that, there's going to be unbroken fellowship with God. Just as was in Eden, now this is going to go on forever. And it's going to be even better than it was in Eden. Look at Revelation chapter 21 verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. We are going to live forever. Those of us who are followers of Christ will live forever in the presence of God himself. Uninterrupted communion with God for all eternity. 
<laughs> this is why I'm so big on creation or, or, or recreation. This is why I'm so big on restoration. God's going to make all things new, and we are going to experience unbroken fellowship with him. Let me ask you this. You know those times when you're reading God's word, or you're in prayer, or you're in worship, and you just have one of those times where just for that little span of time, it feels like everything just falls away, and, and, and it's just you and God, and it's just so sweet. And it's like you're not thinking about anything else. You're just so focused on God. You're so focused on his word. You're so focused on giving him prayer and giving him praise. And you're just so focused on that, that just for that moment, everything just sort of, you know, is, is, there's nothing else, just you and God. You know those moments? I think about those moments, and I like to think about those moments times like a million. That little fleeting moment times like a million forever. Times a million in intensity and times eternity in time span. And you just get to spend that sort of unbroken fellowship with the Lord God of the universe. How does that happen? Well, we'll be made like Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, that's Jesus. So we'll be made like Christ. We'll be perfect. We'll be without sin. And there'll be the removal of grief, pain, and death. All that will go away. Revelation 21 again, picking up with verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Behold, I'm making all things new. No more grief, no more pain, no more sorrow. Some of you know this. We've had a lot of loss in our church family over the last year. A lot of loss. And every graveside that I have stood at and every hospital bed over the last year, it has just gone through my mind, one day this will be no more. There will be no more bedside vigils. There will be no more graveside services. No more, ever ever and then ultimately here it is it's the main thing out of all the things you're like boy everything's been great so far just wait the best the universal knowledge of the glory of god because that's what it's all about because god creates adam and eve and says go multiply what's he saying go spread my image all over the face of creation but now what's being spread the image of fallen man Glimpses of God, yes, but the image of fallen man is being spread, spread over the face of the earth, being spread over all creation, not his perfect, glorious image. But, but the day's going to come. The whole universe will be full of his glory. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. To unite all things in him. To unite all things in Christ. Some translations say this, to bring the universe back to the main point again. And what's the main point? The glory of God as shown through the beautiful work and the person of Jesus. It's the glory of God all throughout the universe. It's what Habakkuk says. For as the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as, for, for the earth will be filled as, uh, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Just as the waters are out there over the sea, over the ocean, just the depth of the water, he says, all over the face of the earth, just as waters are there in the ocean areas, the glory of God is going to be washing over everything. Everything will be immersed in the glory of God. Everything will be fully submerged in the glory of God. Everything will have the glory of God in it and through it and perfectly demonstrating God's incredible glory throughout the known universe. And those of us who are followers of Christ get to be part of that because we're image bearers. And the day is going to come that we will be made perfect. And so therefore we will bear the image of God perfectly, thus reflecting his glory in a perfect way. For how long? For all eternity. And not only will all creation be restored to its, its rightful state of ownership and authority under God, we ourselves will be made like Christ. Not that we'll be deity, but that we'll be perfect. And we will perfectly reflect his glory. I don't know about you. These are the truths that I stand upon in order to endure. To endure what? To endure whatever. Because when you have those four things in place, and you understand how those four things work out together, but only that, how they work in your life, not just at the moment of salvation, but right now, after salvation, you find that you have a foundation that endures because the gospel will always, always endure. God's word will always, always endure. And we trust him, no matter what may come. And if you're here this morning, or you're watching or listening, either now or later, let today be that day. If your worldview has been different, and you've said, I just believe that we just arrived by accident, and I believe we just have to gut it out and do the best that we can on our own, and I believe the problem is a social problem or a political problem or an economic problem. And I believe that's the issue. And I really don't believe that Jesus really and truly is the answer. Can I just tell you, Jesus is the answer. Can I tell you the greatest issue that we're facing is not a social, political, or economic threat. It's the idea and the truth that sin is spreading throughout our universe and that we are the major spreaders. We are the super spreaders of the original sin. That's us. And the only cure is Jesus Christ. And he gives us a future. He gives us a hope because of what he did. So if you've never made that decision to follow him, you've heard the gospel today. We respond in faith to what he has told us clearly in his word. And we live by faith. It is absolutely true. We receive forgiveness for our sins. And we trust in him for our eternity. If you've never done that, let today be the day that you do just that. If you've been living for anything other than Christ, and if you've been off base on any one of these four answers to one of these questions, can I just encourage you, just allow, go to God's Word and allow God to transform your life in that area and, and redirect you toward His biblical truth so that that pillar of that foundation of your worldview will be set upright and will be able to bear the weight and the strain of everything that may come our way. Let's pray. Lord God, we're thankful for your word. God, we're so thankful for your word. It's by your word that we know you. It's by your word that we know these truths. You've revealed them to us. And Father, we just pray now that if there's anyone who's never made a decision to follow you, today would be the day they say yes to you.
as their creator, as their sustainer. They may already say that that's true, but Father, I pray that today would be the day they would say yes to the Redeemer, to the Savior, to the one who died in our place on the cross, Jesus Christ. And that they would recognize that the gospel is far greater than just a one-time event by which we are saved. It is the power that we live by. It's the truth that we stand upon from day to day to day. So may each of us preach that gospel to ourselves every day. That we are your creation. And that we have sinned against you, God. And that Jesus took the penalty for that sin upon himself on the cross. So that we might receive his righteousness. So that we might be restored to full fellowship with you. Partially here now and one day completely and totally wholly restored to fellowship without any sin on our part between us. And we will be a part of that, those waves of glory that will be spread out throughout all creation. So Father, we give you thanks and praise and Lord for those truths. We pray that you might empower us to live by those in the days to come. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.